Good evening. Good to see you back here again tonight. I uh, appreciate the fact that we can gather together around the Word of God. We've been talking about the attributes of God. Tonight we look at God's sovereignty or His, His authority. That's a particular part of His omnipotence or power. The question I have for you tonight is what right does God have to tell me what to do? And the answer is God is king. Not only does God have the right to tell me what to do, it is appropriate that God tells me what to do. The word sovereign means to rule with absolute power and authority. A sovereign is another name for king. And a king, a sovereign, rules with absolute power or authority. Now, there are other kinds of kings. There are Caesarean kings, and there are vassal kings whose power is limited. It's a shared power. A vassal king usually has uh, a king over him. He's a vice regent. He's a king of a particular part of a kingdom, but there is a king over, over him. A Caesarean king is a king that shares its power with its people in some way. You think about the uh, monarchy in England, for example, which is very, very limited in scope and power. The real power in England is, the, is in the parliament. It's not in the queen or were they to have a king. It wouldn't reside in a monarchy. It resides in the uh, parliament. So when we think about kingship, sometimes our view is a little skewed because we don't encounter absolute kings that often in our particular day and age. But in the Old Testament era, kingships were quite common. And God is absolute king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And when we say he's the king of kings, we're talking about how earthly rulers are vice regents. They are all kings under the one true king. They have a responsibility to him. So every earthly king is a vassal king, where God is the supreme, ultimate, final, sovereign king. So tonight we want to emphasize that God has both the right and the might to rule. And the theme is, as Christians... We should rejoice in and welcome that rule in our lives. When we think about God's power and might, we also want to talk about his right to rule. So, first of all, a consideration of God's rule over his kingdom. In order to understand God's rule over his kingdom, we must first understand the scriptural usage of the kingdom of God. And the Bible speaks of God's kingdom in three different ways. First, there is the eternal kingdom. This is the most comprehensive usage of the term kingdom of God. It refers to the rule of God in all spheres of the universe, and the rule is as old as the universe itself. First Chronicles 29.11 Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours, Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head 
over all. Psalm 103.19 The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. God rules over all peoples, nations, beings, and powers. Daniel 4.30 He said, Is not this, this is Nebuchadnezzar, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from him from heaven. This is what is decreed to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. For there was one who was, had greater authority than Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, so Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was humbled, made to eat grass, etc., and in Daniel 4.34, it states, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And that is the most common reference to God's kingdom. He rules over all. There's also the present aspect of the kingdom that was ushered in at the coming of the Lord. That is, at his birth. In this second sense, God rules in the hearts of all who trust in his salvation. In part, this is a recognition of who and what God is. Luke 17, 20. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Colossians 1, 13. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and brought us in the kingdom of the Son He loves. So you and I tonight as believers are a part of God's kingdom. And we recognize in a unique way His rule over us. We are His people and He is our King. And He, again, rules over us. This is the aspect of accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. He forgives our sins and sits on the throne of our lives. He rules our thoughts and actions. We acknowledge His supremacy and rejoice in His protection. He is our King. He is our Defender. Uh, He is our Sovereign. The third aspect of the Kingdom is the future aspect. We must understand that the fact of Christ's present spiritual Kingdom and the fact that God is eternally King over the entire universe Do not negate the predictions of the kingdom of Christ, which is to come into the world in the future. Hebrews 2.7 You made him, this is referring to God the Father, to God the Son. You, God, made him, God the Son, a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to Him. So, in other words, God the Father 
has entrusted the rule of this world to Jesus Christ. And that has been delivered over to, to Christ. Everything belongs to him. There's nothing else that needs to be done. But yet we don't actually see that rule in a visible way. But one day we will. Christ will turn to, return to this earth and he will reign. The future kingdom is a kingdom with a visible earthly manifestation in which Christ will reign over two classes of people. Those who recognize him as Lord and those who only give nominal recognition. And a kingdom in which in absolute authority he will maintain eternal peace, safety, and righteousness. And so the word of God tells us in the book of Philippians that uh, the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every human being alive on the face of the earth will bow to the authority of Jesus Christ. Some willingly, some unwillingly, but everyone will acknowledge his authority. Why? Well, God has the might to rule. He has the power to rule. He can carry out all that he decrees. Ezekiel 30:33. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will rule over you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. Isaiah 63:12. Who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You have gone far enough. You notice how when it's using the word Sovereign Lord, it's saying that no one can stay his hand. No one has authority over God. No one can thwart God. No individual, no army, no power, whether earthly or heavenly, demonic, spiritual, there is no one who is equal with God. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You have gone far enough, O princes of Israel. Give up your violence and oppression. Do what is just and right. Stop dispossessing my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So here, like Pharaoh and other earthly rulers, try to resist or counteract or go against the power of God. It's futile, verse 3. These earthly rulers say, let us break their chains. They say and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God doesn't fear what man will do. God is not afraid of man's rebellion, of earthly kings. It's like a two-year-old who is going to take on the world champ and threaten him that uh, if he doesn't listen, he's going to box his ears. Well, 
No one can thwart God. Then he rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. So Christ's death was in keeping with God's might to rule. Pilate claimed for himself a certain might or power over Christ. When, he, when Pilate was interviewing Christ, Pilate said unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Because Jesus was unwilling to answer some of Pilate's questions. He said, Do you not know that I have power to crucify you? And I have power to release, release you? Christ affirmed that Pilate's power was totally dependent upon God's power. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except that were given thee from above. Therefore, he hath delivered me unto thee, hath the greater sin. Jesus says to Pilate, Pilate, you couldn't do anything that God doesn't allow you to do. The resurrection of Christ was a demonstration of his power over all earthly and spiritual powers. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. It's talking about Christ's resurrection. And in that resurrection, you see, he overcame all powers that were against him. It was the Jewish leaders that wanted to keep Jesus in the tomb and requested that a Roman cohort would be given to them to secure the tomb. There were Roman soldiers at that tomb to guard it, to make sure that the body that was in that tomb would stay in that tomb. Satan wanted to see Jesus in that tomb. But when Jesus came forth bodily from the grave, he demonstrated the fact that he had power over the Jewish leaders. He had power over the Roman government. He had power over the evil one. No entity, no one could keep Jesus in the tomb. It was a demonstration of his power. And so, Ephesians 1.19 says, uh, it's actually picking up in the middle, where there's a prayer offered that we might understand uh, what is the hope of our calling, what is the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints, and now this, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. So he has absolute power for all time. But God not only has the might to rule, he has the right to rule. It is appropriate that he rules. He is a godly ruler. Sometimes there are dictatorships in which there is a coup. The army no longer backs that dictator. And so they rebel and are stronger than that dictator and depose him. And so they become ruler simply by might. Uh, they have no real authority. Uh, they have no uh, legal 
aspect to their rule. They just have, they have the power to do it. And so you may have heard the expression, might makes right. Meaning that if you've got the power to do something, well, then you've got the right to do it because who can stand against you? But in reality, power and right are two separate entities. Not only does God have the power to rule, but it's appropriate that he rules. He has the right to rule as creator. Romans 9.21 Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Doesn't the potter have the right to decide what to do with what he makes is the argument? And we would say, of course. Of course. Whoever makes it has the right then to do with that which he has made whatever he wants. And so, the scripture refers to God as the potter. And we are the clay. He has made us, literally, from the dust of the earth. He has formed us. And as a result of his being the creator, and we being the creature, he has the right, it is appropriate, for God to do with us as he wills. Because he has made us. Secondly, he has the right as the redeemer. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from the forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So, he has the right to rule over us because he has purchased us. There have been times down through the ages in which rulers would either conquer a people or buy a people, such as slaves. And they had certain rights of ownership. And that slave became responsible to that leader because they were purchased. The scripture says we have been purchased. We have been bought. We've been bought by a very costly expense. Namely, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we truly belong to him. And belonging to him, we now are his servants. And it is a word that we find many, many times in the Word of God. And it's the way in which the Apostle Paul most often refers to himself. He refers to himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes in the New Testament that's translated as bond servant. I don't know why they don't translate it that more often, because it means a servant that has been purchased, a doulos, a purchased slave. And that's how Paul viewed himself, one who had an obligation. Paul said, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not his own. God bought him. He has the moral right as a good king. God is a good king in the fullest sense of that word. 
Good in the sense of moral. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Now, notice there the uh, second half of verse 3. Does the Almighty pervert what is right? You've probably heard the statement that says, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Give someone absolute power and you're guaranteed that they're going to do some corrupt things. God has absolute power and yet, because He is holy, because He is just, because He is loving, because of all His attributes, even though He has absolute power, even though He is answerable to no one, even though if he were answerable to someone, no one would be able to do anything about it. Even though he has almighty power, yet he does what is just. He does what is right. He is not corrupt. He is a moral king. He's a good king in the sense of qualified, suitable, or capable But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? He said, I do. I am angry enough to die. Here is Jonah, and he is sent to Nineveh to preach repentance to the city. Of course, you know the story that Jonah doesn't want to go and heads in the opposite direction. And so he's swallowed by that great fish and spewed up, and uh, Jonah realizes that he doesn't have much power. He can't really fight against God. And so reluctantly, he goes to the city of Nineveh to preach. And uh, he falls asleep. And it's, it's hot, it's miserable. And God makes a vine to grow to shade Jonah. But then God causes that vine to wither, And it no longer brings him shade. And Jonah is angry because he no longer is under that shaded vine. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? So God is truly concerned about us. So many leaders give lip service to concern for their people when in reality they are self-serving. They're concerned about themselves and care very little about the consequences of their actions. Solomon lived in such splendor and taxed the people so heavily. God says that he's concerned With the city of Nineveh. He says, isn't that appropriate? You see, Jonah was not concerned about these people. In fact, Jonah wanted to see them destroyed. No matter what your desire is in evangelism. No matter how much you desire to take the good news of the gospel to this lost world. It pales in comparison to God's 
desire. God's love for the people. It's one of those great mysteries in the Word of God that uh, when we were talking about the love of God, I said there's a great distinction between God's love for us as opposed to the lost. And it is so great that it is depicted in the book of Romans as Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And that is very easily misunderstood. It's to be understood the same way that Jesus said, unless you hate father and mother, uh, you can not be my disciple and come after me. It's a word of comparison. You need, if you're going to really follow me, to be more committed to me than your greatest commitments on earth, namely your father and your mother. It's not hate them in a literal sense. It's a comparative term. And we need to understand in this comparison of God loving Jacob and hating Esau. God loves Esau more than we would love any human being on the face of this earth. We need to understand the goodness and grace of God. Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, How often I would have gathered you under my wings, but you would not. We need to be very, very careful when we depict the sovereignty of God, and especially as we discuss the doctrine of election, that we have a proper understanding of God's concern, even for the most wicked and the most reprobate. He is a qualified, suitable, capable king. And then thirdly, good in the sense of desirable. He is a gracious king. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Pastor Brandt did a series on the book of Esther not too long ago. And if you remember, Esther was the queen. She was the favorite of uh, King uh, Azurus. And yet she was afraid to come into his presence. Unless he would hold out his scepter inviting her to come. She didn't have the right to barge into the throne room. That was commonplace in the the Mideast, in Old Testament period of time. And so we marvel because the Word of God says that we have boldness to come to the very throne of God at any time. We have a standing invitation. The scepter is always out for us. That at any time, any place, any condition that we are in, we have the privilege of coming to the throne, which is described as the throne of grace. A gracious throne. Yes, it's a powerful throne. But you see, it's a very gracious throne in which God is concerned about his people. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. 
Solomon was a wise king and a powerful king, yet one that was very difficult to serve under. After Solomon's death, Rehoboam was to rule. So they sent for Jeroboam, and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor of the heavy yoke he put on us, and he will serve you. Every one of us can testify tonight about the light yoke that is placed upon us as servants of God. He knows all about us. He's aware of all that we have done. There is nothing done in secret. He knows how often we have betrayed him. He knows how we have questioned his authority. He knows how we have brought dishonor to him and caused others to blaspheme because of the way that we have acted. And yet God continues to forgive and be gracious to us. God treats us better than any human being has ever treated us. God has forgiven us more than any human being has ever forgiven us. We are unfaithful, poor stewards of God. We give lip service, really, to being his slaves. How often it is that we are not concerned about what he wants us to do, we are more concerned about what we want to do. And we actually expect God to just simply be happy when we ask him to do what we want to do. He is an incredibly gracious king. So, as Christians, we are to welcome and rejoice in God's rule over us. That is at the very heart of what is the difference between a child of God and a child of the evil one. Sin, in the word of God, is primarily rebellion. Rebellion. Sinners are people who are living in rebellion. They are standing up against a sovereign king and declaring what they want to do, how they want to live their lives. As Christians, what makes us unique, not perfectly, but in part, there is a desire for God to rule over us. We recognize, first of all, the appropriateness of it. True worship recognizes the appropriateness of and welcomes God's rule in and over our lives. Uh, Jeff Gaiman just spoke on Revelation 4.11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. From us. That we would ascribe to him glory. That we would give to him, him honor. And we would recognize his power in our lives. We welcome it. We don't chafe against it. And the believer is to strive to have God's rule recognized throughout the world. First, we are to pray to that end. 
When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is on earth, as it is in heaven. That's to be our prayer. That's to be our desire. That's what we want to see. God's rule on the face of this earth. This earth is going to be so much better when Jesus Christ returns and actively rules on the face of this earth. No more crime. No more hardship. No more difficulty. For he is going to rule with a rod of iron. Right now, we should welcome that rule in our lives. We should say to him, your will be done in my life. Not thy will, but mine be done. We recognize the appropriateness of that and the blessedness of that. Next, we're to preach to that end. Acts 20.25 And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I am sent about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Acts 28.30 And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God. One of the great misfortunes of the day and age in which we live that's led to so much misunderstanding and hardship is that we have truncated the gospel, meaning that we have, we have cut off some important aspects of the gospel. When I say truncated, it's like a tree where the, the limbs have been cut off. And we refer to the gospel of Christ. Well, it is the gospel of Christ because the gospel about Christ. It's Christ's gospel. But the proper terminology is the gospel of the kingdom. It's the good news of the kingdom. That's the gospel. We take the good news of God's kingdom. And that good news is you can be a part of that kingdom. That is what it means to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He will deliver you from the kingdom of darkness and transform you into the kingdom of light. And He will rule over you and protect you and keep you and bless you. The good news is that that kingdom is coming to this earth. And you better be ready for it. You better be prepared for it because he is going to rule over all classes of people. Those that bow willingly and those who bow unwillingly. And then there's an ultimate price to be paid for that rebellion, which is eternal separation from God's kingdom. And of course, then the punishment of that eternal separation. We have good news. We have a king. A king who reigns forever. A king that cannot and will not be dethroned. A gracious king. A moral king. A loving king. A good king. And we should rejoice that we have the privilege of being in this kingdom. Have you ever thought 
about how privileged we are to be Americans? Do you ever think about what we have in this country that peoples don't have on other uh, parts of this world? That we have such wonderful privileges and, and rights and freedoms. We ought to be incredibly thankful that we are Americans. And yet, Paul says, who was a citizen of Rome, which was the most prized citizenship you could have because they were a part of the Roman Empire. And Paul called upon that more than once when he said, I am a citizen of Rome. And then it meant they had to stop beating him and and, uh, he had certain rights because uh, he was a uh, Roman citizen. But Paul writes in the book of Philippians and says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Paul prized far more highly the fact that he was a citizen of God's kingdom than he was a citizen of Rome. As much as we ought to be thankful that we are Americans, it should pale in our thankfulness that our citizenship is in the kingdom of God and he rules over us. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to recognize and appreciate your kingship. Lord, may we not fight against it. May we welcome it. May we appreciate it. May we speak of it. May we live it out. O Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. And may it begin with us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.